Chapter Fifteen of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joelle Peebles. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two, Paris in Prison, by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Machen. Episode Seven, Venice, Chapter Fifteen. Croce is expelled from Venice, Sigombro, his infamy and death, misfortune which befalls my dear C. C. I receive an anonymous letter from a nun and answer it, an amorous intrigue. My former partner was, as I have said before, a skillful and experienced hand at securing the favors of fortune. He was driving a good trade in Venice, and as he was amiable and what is called in society a gentleman, he might have held that excellent footing for a long time, if he had been satisfied with gambling, for the state inquisitors would have too much to attend to if they wished to compel fools to spare their fortunes, dupes to be prudent, and cheats not to dupe the fools. But whether through the folly of youth or through a vicious disposition, the cause of his exile was of an extraordinary and disgusting nature. A Venetian nobleman, noble by birth, but very ignoble in his propensities, called Sigombro, and belonging to the Gritty family, fell deeply in love with him, and Croce, either for fun or from taste, showed himself very compliant. Unfortunately, the reserve commanded by common decency was not a guest at their amorous feats, and the scandal became so notorious that the government was compelled to notify to Croce the order to quit the city and to seek his fortune in some other place. Some time afterwards the infamous Sigombro seduced his own two sons, who were both very young, and, unfortunately for him, he put the youngest in such a state as to render necessary an application to a surgeon. The infamous deed became publicly known, and the poor child confessed that he had not had the courage to refuse obedience to his father. Such obedience was, as a matter of course, not considered as forming a part of the duties which a son owes to his father, and the state inquisitors sent the disgusting wretch to the citadel of Cataro, where he died after one year of confinement. It is well known that the air of Cataro is deadly, and that the tribunal sentences to inhale it only such criminals as are not judged publicly for fear of exciting too deeply the general horror by the publication of the trial. It was to Cataro that the Council of Ten sent, fifteen years ago, the celebrated advocate Cantarini, a Venetian nobleman, who by his eloquence had made himself master of the great council, and was on the point of changing the constitution of the state. He died there at the end of the year. As for his accomplices, the tribunal thought that it was enough to punish the four or five leaders, and to pretend not to know the others, who through fear of punishment returned silently to their allegiance. That Sagombro, of whom I spoke before, had a charming wife who is still alive, I believe. Her name was Cornelia Giddy. She was as celebrated by her wit as by her beauty, which she kept in spite of her years. Having recovered her liberty through the death of her husband, she knew better than to make herself a second time the prisoner of the Hymenian god. She loved her independence too much, but as she loved pleasure too, she accepted the homage of the lovers who pleased her taste. One Monday, towards the end of July, my servant woke me at daybreak to tell me that Laura wished to speak to me. 
I foresaw some misfortune and ordered the servant to show her in immediately. These are the contents of the letter which she handed to me. My dearest, a misfortune has befallen me last evening, and it makes me very miserable because I must keep it a secret from everyone in the convent. I am suffering from a very severe loss of blood, and I do not know what to do, having but very little linen. Laura tells me I shall require a great deal of it if the flow of blood continues. I can take no one into my confidence but you, and I entreat you to send me as much linen as you can. You see that I have been compelled to make a confidant of Laura, who is the only person allowed to enter my room at all times. If I should die, my dear husband, everybody in the convent would of course know the cause of my death. But I think of you and I shudder. What will you do in your grief? Ah, darling, love, what a pity! I dressed myself hurriedly, plying Laura with questions all the time. She told me plainly that it was a miscarriage, and that it was necessary to act with great discretion in order to save the reputation of my young friend, that after all she required nothing but plenty of linen, and that it would be nothing. Commonplace words of consolation, which did not allay the fearful anxiety under which I was laboring. I went out with Laura, called on a Jew from whom I bought a quantity of sheets and two hundred napkins, and putting it all in a large bag, I repaired with her to Murren. On our way there I wrote in pencil to my sweetheart, telling her to have entire confidence in Laura, and assuring her that I would not leave Murren until all danger had passed. Before we landed, Laura told me that, in order not to be remarked, I had better conceal myself in her house. At any other time it would have been shutting up the wolf in the sheepfold, she left me in a miserable-looking small room on the ground floor, and concealing about herself as much linen as she could, she hurried to her patient, whom she had not seen since the previous evening. I was in hopes that she would find her out of danger, and I longed to see her come back with that good news. She was absent about one hour, and when she returned her looks were sad. She told me that my poor friend, having lost a great deal of blood during the night, was in bed in a very weak state and that all we could do was to pray to God for her, because if the flooding of the blood did not stop soon, she could not possibly live twenty-four hours. When I saw the linen which she had concealed under her clothes to bring it out, I could not disguise my horror, and I thought the sight would kill me. I fancied myself in a slaughterhouse. Laura, thinking of consoling me, told me that I could rely upon the secret being well kept. "'Ah, what do I care?' I exclaimed. "'Provided she lives, let the whole world know that she is my wife.' At any other time the foolishness of poor Laura would have made me laugh, but in such a sad moment I had neither the inclination nor the courage to be merry. "'Our dear patient,' added Laura, smiled as she was reading your letter, and she said that, with you so near her, she was certain not to die.' Those words did me good, but a man needs so little to console him or to soothe his grief. "'When the nuns are at their dinner,' said Laura, "'I will go back to the convent with as much linen as I can conceal about me, "'and in the meantime I am going to wash all this.' "'Has she had any visitors?' "'Oh, yes, all the convent, but no one has any suspicion of the truth.' "'But in such hot weather as this she can have only a very light blanket over her, "'and her visitors must remark the great bulk of the napkins. "'There is no fear of that, because she is sitting up in her bed. "'What does she eat?' nothing, for she must not eat. 
Soon afterwards, Laura went out, and I followed her. I called upon a physician where I wasted my time and my money in order to get from him a long prescription, which was useless, for it would have put all the convent in possession of the secret, or, to speak more truly, her secret would have been known to the whole world, for a secret known to a nun soon escapes out of the convent's walls. Besides, the physician of the convent himself would most likely have betrayed it through a spirit of revenge. I returned sadly to my miserable hole in Laura's house. Half an hour afterwards she came to me crying bitterly, and she placed in my hands this letter, which was scarcely legible. I have not strength enough to write to you, my darling. I am getting weaker and weaker. I am losing all my blood, and I am afraid there is no remedy. I abandon myself to the will of God, and I thank Him for having saved me from dishonor. Do not make yourself unhappy. My only consolation is to know that you are near me. Alas, if I could see you, but for one moment I would die happy. The sight of a dozen napkins brought by Laura made me shudder, and the good woman imagined that she afforded me some consolation by telling me that as much linen could be soaked with a bottle of blood. My mind was not disposed to taste such consolation. I was in despair, and I addressed to myself the fiercest reproaches, upbraiding myself as the cause of the death of that adorable creature. I threw myself on the bed and remained there almost stunned for more than six hours, until Laura's return from the convent, with twenty napkins entirely soaked. Night had come on, and she could not go back to her patient until morning. I passed a fearful night without food, without sleep, looking upon myself with horror, and refusing all the kind attentions that Laura's daughters tried to show me. It was barely daylight when Laura came to announce to me, in the saddest tone, that my poor friend did not bleed any more. I thought she was dead, and I screamed loudly, "'Oh, she is no more!' "'She is still breathing, sir, but I fear she will not outlive this day, for she is worn out. She can hardly open her eyes, and her pulse is scarcely to be felt. A weight was taken off me. I was instinctively certain that my darling was saved. Laura, I said, this is not bad news. Provided the flooding has ceased entirely, all that is necessary is to give her some light food. A physician has been sent for. He will prescribe whatever is right, but to tell you the truth, I have not much hope. Only give me the assurance that she is still alive. Yes, she is, I assure you, but you understand very well that she will not tell the truth to the doctor, and God knows what he will order. I whispered to her not to take anything, and she understood me. You are the best of women. Yes, if she does not die from weakness before tomorrow, she is saved. Nature and love will have been her doctors. May God hear you. I shall be back by twelve. Why not before? Because her room will be full of people. Feeling the need of hope, and almost dead for want of food, I ordered some dinner and prepared a long letter for my beloved mistress, to be delivered to her when she was well enough to read it. The instants given to repentance are very sad, and I was truly a fit subject for pity. I longed to see Laura again so as to hear what the doctor had said. I had very good cause for laughing at all sorts of oracles, yet through some unaccountable weakness I longed for that of the doctor. I wanted, before all, to find it a propitious one. Laura's young daughters waited upon me at dinner. I could not manage to swallow a mouthful, but it amused me to see the three sisters devour my dinner at the first invitation I gave them. The eldest sister, a very fine girl, never raised her large eyes once towards me. 
The two younger ones seemed to me disposed to be amiable, but if I looked at them it was only to feed my despair and the cruel pangs of repentance. At last, Laura, whom I expected anxiously, came back. She told me that the dear patient remained in the same state of debility. The doctor had been greatly puzzled by her extreme weakness because he did not know to what cause to attribute it. Laura added, He has ordered some restoratives and a small quantity of light broth. If she can sleep, he answers for her life. He has likewise desired her to have someone to watch her at night, and she immediately pointed her finger at me, as if she wished me to undertake that office. Now I promise you never to leave her either night or day, excepting to bring you news. I thanked her, assuring her that I would reward her generously. I heard with great pleasure that her mother had paid her a visit, and that she had no suspicion of the real state of things, for she had lavished on her the most tender caresses. Feeling more at ease, I gave six sequins to Laura, one to each of her daughters, and ate something for my supper. I then laid myself down on one of the wretched beds in the room. As soon as the two younger sisters saw me in bed, they undressed themselves without ceremony, and took possession of the second bed, which was close by mine. Their innocent confidence pleased me. The eldest sister, who most likely had more practical experience, retired to the adjoining room. She had a lover to whom she was soon to be married. This time, however, I was not possessed with the evil spirit of concupiscence, and I allowed innocence to sleep peacefully without attempting anything against it. Early the next morning Laura was the bearer of good news. She came in with a cheerful air to announce that the beloved patient had slept well, and that she was going back soon to give her some soup. I felt an almost maddening joy in listening to her, and I thought the oracle of Aesculapius a thousand times more reliable than that of Apollo. But it was not yet time to exult in our victory, for my poor little friend had to recover her strength and to make up for all the blood she had lost. That could be done only by time and careful nursing. I remained another week at Laura's house, which I left only after my dear C.C. had requested me to do so in a letter of four pages. Laura, when I left, wept for joy in seeing herself rewarded by the gift of all the fine linen I had brought for my C.C., and her daughters were weeping likewise, most probably because during the ten days I had spent near them they had not obtained a single kiss from me. After my return to Venice I resumed my usual habits, but with a nature like mine how could I possibly remain satisfied without positive love? My only pleasure was to receive a letter from my dear recluse every Wednesday, who advised me to wait patiently rather than to attempt carrying her off. Laura assured me that she had become more lovely than ever, and I longed to see her. An opportunity of gratifying my wishes soon offered itself, and I did not allow it to escape. There was to be a taking of the veil, a ceremony which always attracts a large number of persons. On those occasions the nuns always received a great many visitors, and I thought that the boarders were likely to be in the parlor on such an occasion. I ran no risk of being remarked any more than any other person, for I would mingle with the crowd. I therefore went without saying anything about it to Laura, and without acquainting my dear little wife of my intentions. I thought I would fall, so great was my emotion, when I saw her within four yards of me, and looking at me as if she had been in an ecstatic state. I thought her taller and more womanly, and she certainly seemed to me more beautiful than before. I saw no one but her. 
She never took her eyes off me, and I was the last to leave that place, which on that day struck me as being the temple of happiness. Three days afterwards I received a letter from her. She painted with such vivid colors the happiness she had felt in seeing me, that I made up my mind to give her that pleasure as often as I could. I answered at once that I would attend Mass every Sunday at the church of her convent. It cost me nothing. I could not see her, but I knew that she saw me herself, and her happiness made me perfectly happy. I had nothing to fear, for it was almost impossible that anyone could recognize me in the church which was attended only by the people of Murren. After hearing two or three Masses, I used to take a gondola, the gondolier of which could not feel any curiosity about me. Yet I kept on my guard, for I knew that the father of C. C. wanted her to forget me, and I had no doubt he would have taken her away, God knew where, if he had had the slightest suspicion of my being acquainted with the place where he had confined her. Thus I was reasoning in my fear to lose all opportunity of corresponding with my dear C. C., but I did not yet know the disposition and the shrewdness of the sainted daughters of the Lord. I did not suppose that there was anything remarkable in my person, at least for the inmates of a convent, but I was yet a novice respecting the curiosity of women, and particularly of unoccupied hearts. I had soon occasion to be convinced. I had executed my Sunday maneuvering only for a month or five weeks, when my dear C. C. wrote me jestingly that I had become a living enigma for all the convent, boarders, and nuns, not even excepting the old ones. They all expected me anxiously. They warned each other of my arrival, and watched me taking the holy water. They remarked that I never cast a glance toward the grating behind which were all the inmates of the convent that I never looked at any of the women coming in or going out of the church. The old nun said that I was certainly laboring under some deep sorrow, of which I had no hope to be cured except through the protection of the Holy Virgin, and the young ones asserted that I was either melancholy or misanthropic. My dear wife, who knew better than the others, and had no occasion to lose herself in suppositions, was much amused, and she entertained me by sending me a faithful report of it all. I wrote to her that, if she had any fear of my being recognized, I would cease my Sunday visits to the church. She answered that I could not impose upon her a more cruel privation, and she entreated me to continue my visits. I thought it would be prudent, however, to abstain from calling at Laura's house, for fear of the chattering nuns contriving to know it, and discovering in that manner a great deal more than I wished them to find out. But that existence was literally consuming me by slow degrees, and could not last long. Besides, I was made to have a mistress, and to live happily with her. Not knowing what to do with myself, I would gamble, and I almost invariably won. But in spite of that, weariness had got hold of me, and I was getting thinner every day. With the five thousand sequins which my partner Croce had won for me in Padua, I had followed Monsieur Bragadin's advice. I had hired a casino where I held a faro bank in partnership with a matador, who secured me against the frauds of certain noblemen, tyrants with whom a private citizen is always sure to be in the wrong in my dear country. On All Saints' Day in the year 1753, just as, after hearing Mass, I was going to step into a gondola to return to Venice, I saw a woman, somewhat in Laura's style, who, passing near me, looked at me and dropped a letter. I picked it up and the woman, seeing me in possession of the epistle, quietly went on. The letter had no address, and the seal represented a running knot, 
I stepped hurriedly into the gondola, and as soon as we were in the offing, I broke the seal. I read the following words. A nun who for the last two months and a half has seen you every Sunday in the church of her convent wishes to become acquainted with you. A pamphlet which you have lost and which chance has thrown into her hands makes her believe that you speak French, but if you like it better you can answer in Italian, because what she wants above all is a clear and precise answer. She does not invite you to call for her at the parlor of the convent, because before you place yourself under the necessity of speaking to her, she wishes you to see her, and for that purpose she will name a lady whom you can accompany to the parlor. That lady shall not know you, and need not therefore introduce you, in case you should not wish to be known. Should you not approve of that way to become acquainted, the nun will appoint a certain casino in Murren, in which you will find her alone, in the evening, any night you may choose. You will then be at liberty either to sup with her, or to retire after an interview of a quarter of an hour, if you have any other engagements. Would you rather offer her a supper in Venice? Name the night, the hour, the place of appointment, and you will see her come out of a gondola. Only be careful to be there alone, masked, and with a lantern. I feel certain that you will answer me, and that you will guess how impatiently I am waiting for your letter. I entreat you, therefore, to give it tomorrow to the same woman through whom you will receive mine. You will find her one hour before noon in the church of St. Cancian, near the first altar on the right. Recollect that if I did not suppose you endowed with a noble soul and a high mind, I could never have resolved on taking a step which might give you an unfavorable opinion of my character. The tone of that letter which I have copied word by word surprised me even more than the offer it contained. I had business to attend to, but I gave up all engagements to lock myself in my room in order to answer it. Such an application betokened an extravagant mind, but there was in it a certain dignity, a singularity, which attracted me. I had an idea that the writer might be the same nun who taught French to C.C. C. She had represented her friend in her letters as handsome, rich, gallant, and generous. My dear wife had perhaps been guilty of some indiscretion. A thousand fancies whirled through my brain, but I would entertain only those which were favorable to a scheme highly pleasing to me. Besides, my young friend had informed me that the nun who had given her French lessons was not the only one in the convent who spoke that language. I had no reason to suppose that if C. C. had made a confidant of her friend, she would have made a mystery of it to me. But for all that, the nun who had written to me might be the beautiful friend of my dear little wife, and she might also turn out to be a different person. I felt somewhat puzzled. Here is, however, the letter which I thought I could write without implicating myself. I answer in French, madam, in the hope that my letter will have the clearness and the precision of which you give me the example in yours. The subject is highly interesting and of the highest importance, considering all the circumstances. As I must answer without knowing the person to whom I am writing, you must feel, madam, that unless I should possess a large dose of vanity, I must fear some mystification, and my honor requires that I should keep on my guard. If it is true that the person who has penned that letter is a respectable woman, who renders me justice in supposing me endowed with feeling as noble as her own, she will find, I trust, that I could not answer in any other way than I am now doing. If you have judged me worthy, madam, of the honor which you do me by offering me your acquaintance, although your good opinion can have been formed only from my personal appearance, I feel it my duty to obey you, 
even if the result be to undeceive you by proving that I had unwittingly led you into a mistaken appreciation of my person. Of the three proposals which you so kindly made in your letter, I dare not accept any but the first, with the restriction suggested by your penetrating mind. I will accompany to the parlor of your convent a lady who shall not know who I am, and consequently shall have no occasion to introduce me. Do not judge too severely, madam, the specious reasons which compel me not to give you my name, and receive my word of honor that I shall learn yours only to render you homage. If you choose to speak to me, I will answer with the most profound respect. Permit me to hope that you will come to the parlor alone. I may mention that I am a Venetian and perfectly free. The only reason which prevents me from choosing one of the two other arrangements proposed by you, either of which would have suited me better because they greatly honor me, is, allow me to repeat it, a fear of being the victim of a mystification. But these modes of meeting will not be lost when you know me and when I have seen you. I entreat you to have faith in my honor and to measure my patience by your own. Tomorrow, at the same place and at the same hour, I shall be anxiously expecting your answer. I went to the place appointed, and having met the female Mercury, I gave her my letter with a sequin, and I told her that I would come the next day for the answer. We were both punctual. As soon as she saw me, she handed me back the sequin which I had given her the day before, and a letter requesting me to read it, and to let her know whether she was to wait for an answer. Here is the exact copy of the letter. I believe, sir, that I have not been mistaken in anything. Like you, I detest untruth when it can lead to important consequences, but I think it a mere trifle when it can do no injury to anyone. Of my three proposals, you have chosen the one which does the greatest honor to your intelligence, and respecting the reasons which induce you to keep your incognito, I have written the enclosed to the Countess of S., which I request you to read. Be kind enough to seal it before delivery of it to her. You may call upon her whenever convenient to yourself. She will name her own hour, and you will accompany her here in her gondola. The Countess will not ask you any questions, and you need not give her any explanation. There will be no presentation, but as you will be made acquainted with my name, you can afterwards call on me here, masked, whenever you please, and by using the name of the Countess. In that way we shall become acquainted without the necessity of disturbing you, or of your losing at night some hours which may be precious to you. I have instructed my servant to wait for your answer in case you should be known to the Countess and object to her. If you approve of the choice I have made of her, tell the messenger that there is no answer. As I was an entire stranger to the countess, I told the woman that I had no answer to give, and she left me. Here are the contents of the note addressed by the nun to the countess, and which I had to deliver to her. I beg of you, my dear friend, to pay me a visit when you are at leisure, and to let the masked gentleman bearer of this note know the hour, so that he can accompany you. He will be punctual. Farewell. You will much oblige your friend. That letter seemed to me informed by a sublime spirit of intrigue. There was in it an appearance of dignity which captivated me, although I felt conscious that I was playing the character of a man on whom a favor seemed to be bestowed. In her last letter, my nun, pretending not to be anxious to know who I was, approved of my choice and feigned indifference for nocturnal meetings but she seemed certain that after seeing her I would visit her. I knew very well what to think of it all, for the intrigue was sure to have an amorous issue. 
nevertheless her assurance or rather confidence increased my curiosity and i felt that she had every reason to hope if she were young and handsome i might very well have delayed the affair for a few days and have learned from c c who that nun could be but besides the baseness of such a proceeding i was afraid of spoiling the game and repenting it afterwards i was told to call on the countess at my convenience but it was because the dignity of my nun would not allow her to show herself too impatient and she certainly thought that i would myself hasten the adventure she seemed to me too deeply learned in gallantry to admit the possibility of her being an inexperienced novice and i was afraid of wasting my time but i made up my mind to laugh at my own expense if i happened to meet a superannuated female it is very certain that if i had not been actuated by curiosity i should not have gone one step further but i wanted to see the countenance of a nun who had offered to come to venice to sup with me besides i was much surprised at the liberty enjoyed by those sainted virgins and at the facility with which they could escape out of their walls at three o'clock i presented myself before the countess and delivered the note and she expressed a wish to see me the next day at the same hour we dropped a beautiful reverence to one another and parted she was a superior woman already going down the hill but still very handsome the next morning being sunday i need not say that i took care to attend mass at the convent elegantly dressed and already unfaithful at least in idea to my dear c c for i was thinking of being seen by the nun young or old rather than of showing myself to my charming wife in the afternoon i masked myself again and at the appointed time i repaired to the house of the countess who was waiting for me we went in a two-oared gondola and reached the convent without having spoken of anything but the weather when we arrived at the gate the countess asked for m m i was surprised by that name for the woman to whom it belonged was celebrated we were shown into a small parlor and a few minutes afterwards a nun came in went straight to the grating touched a spring, and made four squares of the grating revolve, which left an opening sufficiently large to enable the two friends to embrace. The ingenious window was afterwards carefully closed. The opening was at least eighteen inches wide, and a man of my size could easily have got through it. The countess sat opposite the nun, and I took my seat a little on one side, so as to be able to observe quietly, and, at my ease, one of the most beautiful women that it was possible to see. I had no doubt whatever of her being the person mentioned by my dear C. C. as teaching her French. Admiration kept me in a sort of ecstasy, and I never heard one word of their conversation. The beautiful nun, far from speaking to me, did not even condescend to honor me with one look. She was about twenty-two or twenty-three years of age, and the shape of her face was most beautiful. Her figure was much above the ordinary height, her complexion rather pale, her appearance noble, full of energy, but at the same time reserved and modest. Her eyes were large and full, were of a lovely blue. Her countenance was soft and cheerful. Her fine lips seemed to breathe the most heavenly voluptuousness, and her teeth were two rows of the most brilliant enamel. Her headdress did not allow me to see her hair, but if she had any I knew by the color of her eyebrows that it was of a beautiful light brown. Her hand and her arm, which I could see as far as the elbow, were magnificent. The chisel of Praxiteles never carved anything more gracefully rounded and plump. I was not sorry to have refused the two rendezvous which had been offered to me, 
by the beauty, for I was sure of possessing her in a few days, and it was a pleasure for me to lay my desires at her feet. I longed to find myself alone with her near that grating, and I would have considered it an insult to her if, the very next day, I had not come to tell her how fully I rendered to her charms the justice they deserved. She was faithful to her determination not to look at me once, but after all I was pleased with her reserve. All at once the two friends lowered their voices, and out of delicacy I withdrew further. Their private conversation lasted about a quarter of an hour, during which I pretended to be intently looking at a painting. Then they kissed one another again by the same process as at the beginning of the interview. The nun closed the opening, turned her back on us, and disappeared without casting one glance in my direction. As we were on our way back to Venice, the Countess, tired perhaps of our silence, said to me with a smile, M. M. is beautiful and very witty. I have seen her beauty, and I believe in her wit. She did not address one word to you. I had refused to be introduced to her, and she punished me by pretending not to know that I was present. The Countess made no answer, and we reached her house without exchanging another word. At her door, a very ceremonious curtsy, with these words, Adieu, sir, warned me that I was not to go any further. I had no wish to do so, and went away dreaming and wondering at the singularity of the adventure, the end of which I longed to see. End of chapter 15 Recording by Joelle Peebles